I'm reminded of the story that uh, I heard a minister tell a long time ago. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's worth repeating. A new minister was called to the charge, and uh, before he began to preach, he did this. And at the end of his sermon, he did this. And after a while, the congregation uh, couldn't bear it any longer. They said, what does this mean and what does that mean? Oh, he said, quotation marks. (laughs) Well, I've never plagiarised anybody's sermon for the whole sermon, but I have to say that the sermon I'm about to bring to you is not my sermon at all. It's Philip's sermon. So if you don't like it, if you don't like the sermon, you can blame him, and if you don't like the way it's preached, you can blame me. Let's ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we come to you in unusual circumstances to acknowledge that it's, it's not, <clears throat> not the preacher that matters, but it's your word. It's not human power that matters, it's the working of your spirit. So we pray for your help, for the working of your spirit by your words to bring your blessing to us. And we ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen. Well, I'm probably right in supposing that at some time or other most of us have had to arrange the furniture in a new home. Well, even if you haven't done so, we would have all done so, wouldn't we? At some time or another, uh, we've moved into a home and we've had to rearrange the furniture. And the question is, uh, where will it go? Well, there's probably only one place where the the fridge will fit and one place where the deep freeze might go. Uh, But then then there's all the pictures, the knickknacks. Where do you put the family photographs? Uh, And then there's the beds in the bedroom. How do you arrange them to make the best advantage of the room? And uh, yes, there's the piano. It's not my sermon, so I won't tell you about the adventure we had with our piano when we shifted in. Uh, That's another story. I'll tell you later. And then there's all the books in the study, the books that have to be arranged, uh, or the bookshelves that have to be put together. Um, it's, it's, uh, it can be fun, can't it? And it's hard work. And sometimes it's a matter of trial and error until everything is done and our house is just the way we want it. Well, we're taking a little bit of a leap from that, our experience, to our text this morning in the second part of 1 Kings chapter 7 where Solomon is setting about furnishing the temple that he has just built and its outer courtyard. Not that he could go ahead and put the furniture anywhere he wanted. He would have known that he had no room, and this Philip says, pardon the pun, uh, no room for uh, artistic license or arranging the items as he or uh, perhaps his wife uh, would have liked it. He would have known that each piece of furniture was necessary and each had to be deliberately placed for the purpose of highlighting something bigger than taste or appearance. So this morning we come to chapter 7, the latter half, and we look at the furnishings of the temple. It's quite likely that this text isn't going to be everyone's cup of tea. Just reading through the text can be laborious and difficult. And uh, we thank Alice and Helen for the way they, uh, Philip has ploughed through, but that's not right. You did it wonderfully well. We thank you for your reading. It made it so intelligible for us. I might also note that the whole idea of preaching a sermon on furnishings is probably not going to be as exciting as a sermon on a subject where there's lots of action 
and uh, some mystery to unravel, although maybe furnishings fit into the category of, of mystery for us blokes rather than for you women uh, who like to have your nest just the way you want it to be. So we're looking at the furniture of the temple this morning uh, and in particular we're looking at the items of bronze and gold. The bronze outside in the temple courtyard and the gold inside the temple in the interior, the holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies. So let's begin with the items of bronze. The text begins with the identity of the worker of bronze in verses 13 and 14. And there we're introduced to Hiram of Tyre, who is the master craftsman of this work. Now this Hiram, who is also known as Huram, is not to be confused with King Hiram in chapter 5. The text points out this man's Israelite ancestry, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the way in which he is described as being full of wisdom and understanding. It's a reminder of the way the Holy Spirit used the workers of the tabernacle, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, in Exodus 13. And it's a reminder that each of us is gifted and talented with some gifts or talents, something to contribute to the body of Christ, the living temple of God. There are no useless people in Christ's kingdom. There are no useless talents. God has given us all to each other. He's given us all gifts to contribute, all gifts to use to edify his church. Why would God get the very best of craftsmen to work on his temple, to deck it out in this way? Because God is a master craftsman, a God of beauty, and he is doing his work in each of us. He is making perfect, broken things. The furnishings of the temple remind us of the way that God is renovating our hearts, filling us with the fruits of the Spirit and conforming us to Christ's image. So we turn to verses 15 through to 22 and they give us detail about the bronze pillars, the two bronze pillars. They were huge. They would have dwarfed the people around about in metres, 8.1 metres high, 5.4 metres in circumference, and hollow with the bronze about 75 millimetres thick. And they both had large and ornate capitals uh, on their tops. They would have been more or less like huge trees or tree trunks. Uh, Perhaps they were built to remind those who saw them of Eden beautifully engraved with pomegranates and lilies. Why pomegranates? Why lilies? Well, pomegranates were a picture of bounty. The interior of a pomegranate is just full of seeds. And lilies in scripture are associated with love. And uh, being hollow, uh, these pillows were most likely symbolic and decorative. They weren't load-bearing. They weren't carrying a roof above them. They were named, the temple faced east, so there was a southern and there was a northern pillar, Yachin and Boaz. And so as the worshipper walked into the temple courtyard with the temple directly in front of him, he would see these two huge 
pillars on either hand at the temple's entrance. Yachin means he will establish. We find the same Hebrew word in the promise of God to David that he would establish his throne. That is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the pillar brings to mind the covenant God promise of God to David that he would establish the throne of David. Boaz means in him is strength. So we take these two pillars together. The one indicates the promise of God and the other indicates the power of God. One indicates the promise of God, his good plan to prosper Israel through her king. And the second speaks of God's power, which is able to perform his promise in faithfulness. So although the pillars were ornamental, they weren't supporting the roof of the temple, uh, they did portray the true support of the nation, God himself. By his power and fulfilment of his promise, he would through his king bless Israel. A reminder to us that in Jesus we have already received a greater blessing in salvation than any earthly kingdom could give. That one day he will finish this work of salvation and we will have the full blessings of his kingdom. The next item to note in the courtyard is the sea. If you can imagine a huge round swimming pool like basin perched on the backs of bronze oxen holding about 44,000 litres of water, around about a 50th of the size of an Olympic swimming pool, uh, then you've got it. It wasn't small, it was big. This large basin uh, probably had two main purposes. On the one hand, to remind God's people of the need for cleansing before coming into presence. It was for washing. And also to serve as a reminder of crossing the Red Sea the great salvation event that the people of Israel knew. Now there is something of significance here again in its placing, for it was placed where the, it would remind the people of Israel of the salvation God gave to them. How so? Well, the sea was on one side and opposite to it in the courtyard was the bronze altar, reminding the people of what happened to bring them safely out of Egypt. They would come in passing an altar which would remind them of the Passover sacrifice made on their behalf. And then they would come to the sea, which would remind them of how God saved them through water and by water. And then we come in verses 27 through to 39, which speak of the ten stands with the ten mini-basins, which each held about 900 litres and which we used to wash the burnt offerings. And then in verses 43 to 47, list all the items made of bronze, And we can add to this growing list various pots, shovels, dishes and tongs which were all used as part of the sacrificial process. Every piece was consecrated and set apart reminding us that every aspect of our lives uh, comes under the heading of being a living sacrifices and needs to be set apart for the work of God. We are to give each and every part of ourselves and our possessions in worship to the one who saved us by his blood. And then secondly, we come to the items of gold. These are listed through in verses 48 to 51. 
And I won't read them again. If you've got your Bibles open there, you can read them while listening, I hope. Uh, you might wonder in your minds why is some of the things made out of bronze and some of them out of gold. Well, the answer is that gold was used for the items inside the inner parts of the temple and bronze was used outside in the courtyard. I think the idea here is that the further you go into the temple, the closer you were to drawing to the presence of God. And so as you come closer to him, the metals become a whole lot more precious to reflect something of his glory. Now the items within the inner part of the temple, which included the holy place and the holy of holies, or the most holy place, were the golden altar, the golden table for the showbread, and the golden lampstand. And then, of course, within the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Let's think about these things. In the golden altar, or the altar of incense, we see how incense was part of the hospitality of every host. In the ancient world, the smell of animals and sweat were always a reality, especially in the desert where water was scarce. Incense was supplied to disguise the smells and was a thoughtful touch by any host. In this instance, the incense is covering the stench of our sin. And in the altar of incense, we have a graphic picture of how a sacrifice is received from the bronze altar. An animal would be offered and the fat of the animal or the appropriate parts would be burned. The smell and smoke would rise into the heavens, uh, representing reaching God himself. Prayer is often likened to incense in the scriptures, reminding us not only of our own prayers, but those offered by our great high priest on our behalf, whose heavenly intercession on our behalf is more effective than any physical incense offered in the tabernacle. Next we come to the golden table for showbread. This was placed on a table in the inner room. In the ancient Middle East, well, even in today's Middle East, hospitality is very important. Hospitality was customarily practised. If someone came to your home, uh, you would feed them and offer them protection and meet whatever other needs they had. And the showbread was a meal, represented a meal that God, to which God invited his people through the priests to have with him, that they might enjoy his fellowship and protection. The bread was made up of 12 loaves, symbolising the 12 tribes, all provided for. And this bread was renewed every day, indicating that God was always, daily, inviting his people to have this meal with him. And so for us, the significance of this bread is that it points us to Jesus, who is the bread of life, who has come down from heaven, and his own promise that anyone who eats of it will never hunger again. In Jesus, the bread which we could never eat, that is the bread that was in the temple, is now accessible to us by faith. And the fellowship meal with God is no longer done by priests on our behalf, but on all who come to him in repentance and faith. And then we come to the golden lampstands. They also 
have symbolism. On one hand, they would give light all night long. And this was the only light besides the glory of God himself. The seven lights of each lamp would have reminded the Israelites of the sun and the moon and the five known planets of the day. And these would have reminded the people of the light which God provides for them and the times and seasons by which their seasons came. But also note that the lamps were in the shape of a tree and hidden away in the inaccessible presence of God, which would have reminded them of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden from which mankind was thrown out, never to eat of it again. And so we are reminded that now there is access again through our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, into God's presence, back to the tree of life, as it is pictured for us in Revelation chapter 22. Now, as you might expect with these items of gold within the temple, there are links between them, all of them bringing to mind God's saving power as he delivered his people out of Egypt. The bread reminding them of the manna which he fed them in the desert, the lampstand reminding them of the light he brought into their darkness. Think how Jesus knew this and used these things to speak of himself, saying, I am the bread from heaven. I am the light of the world. See that how in these things in the holy place pointed the people back to their salvation history, but also at the same time to the one who would come to fulfil every aspect of what this temple represented so that he became for us our salvation event, our sacrifice, our cleansing, our living bread and our light. And then moving into the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which had within it Aaron's rod that had budded, a jar of manna and the tablets upon which were written the Ten Commandments. And also upon it was the mercy seat, uh, about which we'll be thinking more next week. But just for the now, uh, note the sequence. If you'd been able to, imagine yourselves at the temple. Uh, If you'd been able to walk in, you would have passed by the sea. Well, you wouldn't get to get to the ark, only the high priest could go there. But just imagine for a moment that you could. Uh, reminding the people of the sequence of their deliverance from Egypt through the Passover lamb, the Red Sea for deliverance, and then on to Mount Sinai and God himself. You might have thought, as I did when first looking in the text, that this might turn out to be a long-winded sermon that you would hope would soon end so that we could quickly go and have lunch. I hope now you think otherwise. Just in case I haven't made it clear as I ought, or if you're still struggling with the whole concept of these furnishings, let me make some applications. Firstly, at one level, we need to recognise that all this attention to detail within the temple and the beauty and wonder of it all is a picture of the great care and concern that God once showed and continues to show for us, his people, right down to the very last detail. The second, since the temple is a type of the church, that is the people, not the building, there is a powerful truth being communicated here that God is the master craftsman who is still overseeing the building 
of a beautiful temple, which is us, his people. We, the church, are both the temple and its furnishings. The precious metals and the artistic care taken are a reminder of the beautiful thing that God is making of us as his living temple. The pillars speak to us of God's promise and his power to complete his work in us, each part holy and to be used in the worship of God, speaks to us of total consecration as living sacrifices. We are to be both encouraged and challenged by these. The God who has promised, our God who has promised, is able to fulfil. He will keep all that he has promised. And encouraged by God's goodness, by the beauty and glory he is bestowing upon us, his living temple, we are challenged to employ every item of our lives in a constant service of worship. And then, thirdly, and maybe most importantly, these furnishings form part of the bigger picture of how a sinful people could and can have fellowship with a living God, a holy God, <clears throat> something, <clears throat> something which is by nature denied to every person since Eden. Many people think we can just walk straight into the presence of God and approach him, but we can't. For a start, as sinners, you and I wouldn't be allowed anywhere near this temple. And as Gentiles, uh, you and I wouldn't be allowed in the temple. And about that, the New Testament has much to say. It tells us that the great salvation plan of God to rescue his people <clears throat> is something that reaches down to us today. That which he did for his people long ago is not just their story, it's our story. That is to say, the events that all the furnishings speak of point us towards the salvation won for us by Jesus on the cross, <clears throat> redeeming, saving and delivering us from our own slavery to sin and the devil. But more than that, they point to the fact that as part of his salvation plan, uh, Jesus became the temple that we can and are to go into, for he offered himself on the cross outside the walls of the temple for the forgiveness of his people not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood. And we can now approach the presence of God by that once-for-all-time sacrifice completed for us, something that cannot be undone, something which cannot be repeated. And the upshot of all this is that we are safe if we are in him, saved if we are in him. And the wonder of all this did not fail to capture the notice of the writer to the Hebrews who put it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, <clears throat> since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The letter to the Hebrews is all about Jesus being better. His service to God was better than that of Moses. His body offered for us was better than animal sacrifices. His high priestly role for us is better 
than that of those who served in the temple. And his body given for us is better than all that the temple was. And his salvation more permanent and lasting than that which these people once knew. We may not be able to go now into the temple, but the way better than that, what you and I have in him, something that calls us to respond, as the hymn writer says, casting down our crowns before him, lost in wonder, love and praise. If you don't know these things, then seek to know them. Ask questions, find answers. And if you do know these things, then thank God for the salvation that is as amazing and precious as the one we have now have in Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father God, we thank you that you condescend to our frailty, our weakness, and that you provide us with pictures word pictures, uh, object pictures. We remember that to help us remember our Lord Jesus in his death, you've given us a meal of bread and wine. And this morning, Father, we've been thinking about pictures you gave your people in uh, a temple building and the objects, the furnishings of that building. And we thank you that we've been able to reflect upon these objects uh, given to us in word picture as they've spoken to us of the glorious salvation that you have accomplished for us and for all your people. We praise you for shed blood, not of animals but of our Lord Jesus. We praise you for the washing that is by his word and spirit. And we pray that no one will leave here this morning without experiencing by faith in him uh, that cleansing from sin, that washing from impurity that brings us into your presence and makes us acceptable in your sight. Bless us, we pray, as we ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen.